Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and with me again is Brandon Warmke, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. With Justin Tosi, he is author of Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk, which, by the way, was one of our episodes 181, uh, so you can go back and listen to that. He is also author of a new book with Justin, Why It's Okay to Mind Your Own Business. Thank you for joining me, Brandon. Thanks for having me back, Doug. This is an exciting conversation I'm looking forward to having because your book, when I saw why it's okay to mind your own business, I'm like, man, I got like five people in my life that I wish I could give this to. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it, this is obviously in a book that can appeal to libertarians and people who wish to be left alone in some ways, which isn't entirely the whole point of your book. But one thing I want to start with is I think you and I are roughly the same age, but I remember back when I was coming of age as a teenager and into my 20s, there were a lot of non-Christians who would tell Christians, hey, didn't Jesus say that you shouldn't judge? And I feel like that advice or ethos that people out there in the world are like, oh, hey, if there's one thing I can, you know, appropriate Jesus's words, it's don't judge me. It seems to me that now everybody feels entitled to judge everybody else. And there seems to be a push toward it's okay to not mind your own business and to judge and moralize and insert yourself into other people's businesses into their lives and not businesses as in like their commerce business, but their lives. Do you feel like that's kind of happening? And is that why this book is necessary? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people, so I, you know, I think we probably are around the same age. I feel like back then there was a kind of like the cool view was a kind of live and let live relativism. Yeah. And postmodern, people used to call it like postmodern, like, oh, there's no objective truth. You just sort of have to like go your own way. That view, if it ever was a popular view, it's not what is dominating university culture, mm. public media, journalist culture, corporate activism. It's really hard to avoid stepping on campus or watching commercials, reading the press releases from university presidents or corporate CEOs and think, ah, yeah, they're just kind of live and let live. They're not really convinced of some objective moral truth. So I think there's a conviction on many people's part that morality is very clear. There's a kind of Manichaean division of the world between good and evil, good and bad. And it's pretty clear who's on the side of the angels. And it's pretty clear who is fighting <laughs> for the forces of evil. And part of what you need to do, part of what it means to be a responsible citizen or just a decent world person is to stand up, protest, make your views known, embarrass and shame the bad people, platform the good people. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you sort of dust your hands and go to sleep and then you rinse and repeat the next day. <laughs> so. When the history books get written, it will be interesting to see if that's the right read because it, I think you're right. It feels that way. I don't think we're in a particularly unique moralistic age, but something that, you know, as the kids say, there, there has been a vibe shift. Even from when I started grad school almost 20 years ago, it feels very differently than it used to. And, and yeah. I think that's part of what motivated the book 
is to think about our public culture and, you know, what really is our responsibility when it comes to enforcing morality? I think the rise of activism somewhat in my mind becomes a little bit somewhat of people's religion. There's a religious nature to the appeal to activism because it feels like you're doing right in the world. Even many Christians can kind of fall prey to this with, you know, maybe more social gospel activist elements on the left. It's like, oh, hey, you know, we can carry out our religion by inserting ourselves into the public space, right? And to give the people a fair shake who want to do this, it's almost like they're just well-meaning and they want to assert some sort of moral voice into the public square, but they don't see it as inserting themselves into other people's lives. They see it as inserting themselves into the, the public square, which I guess in their minds is very different. There is a religious aspect, I think, as people find less meaning in things from above, they have to sort of like look down and find yeah. meaning, you know, in the nitty gritty moral decisions of your neighbors and your friends and nitpick. I also think there's a lot of status anxiety, Doug. Like I, I think, you know, this in a way was sort of the point of the grandstanding book is that people are using moral talk to seek status. And insofar as there were fewer and fewer ways of gaining status and finding meaning in status seeking that can be perfectly appropriate, you know, being the head of your Kiwanis club, uh-huh. you know, being a deacon at your church, you know, ways to sort of have people look up to you and, and lead in perfectly innocuous and even healthy ways. The more that people have taken from them opportunities in the religious communities and local platoons to seek status and be important, I think they use it on social media. This is what they use social media for. And so, like, you know, if you're, yeah, if you're a 25-year-old person who doesn't really have much going for you, you know, you kind of live in your, you know, you live in your one-bedroom apartment and you have a crummy job and you just feel like you don't have a family. There's really nothing really making you wake up the next day. It's got to be tempting to get online and today I know what I could tweet and have a bunch of people praise me for, you know, how good I am and (laughs) how important of a stand I'm taking. I know exactly what yeah. to say. And I, I think that's what's driving a lot of people is a need to belong and, and for yeah. status. Well, you know, the other aspect of that is, and this is, is not just like, imagine like the status seeking thing, but imagine social media is also creating an opportunity that they see as possibility. So for example, my kids, a lot of the shows that they watch are average people like them who grew up in rural North Carolina or wherever in Michigan somehow become famous over YouTube. And it's like, hey, I could do this too. And what does it take? Oh, well, I just need to get attention by giving sight to blind people. (laughs) And uh, that'll raise raise moral average on the one hand because that's how the left is. But, you know, I just need to do things that will get attention and be fun and all of this. And it's like, well, that's not so hard. I have a camera on my phone and I can buy a microphone for really inexpensive and I can do some editing on the computer that I have and maybe I can make it big and maybe I can... And and then you realize that you can have a voice by doing what you just said, which is grandstanding. And it's like people's minds go to, I can get famous faster than my parents and grandparents would be able to do. And so it drives people to want to show up and get attention. Yeah, I think there are these internal motivations. One... We dedicate the book to our students and 
One thing we had in mind in writing this book is what we call commencement speech morality. Mm-hmm. So a lot of young people are told, get out there, do big things, make a name for yourself, start a revolution, upset the status quo. The world is a receptacle of problems and people to help. And the people in charge right now don't have their hearts in the right place, but you do. And you know how to solve these problems. So get out there and change the world. So that's a message that you'll often hear in convincing speeches and elsewhere in culture. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of young people are being told their lives are not meaningful or they've somehow let the social elite down. You know, know, Bill Gates is telling them, you got to get out and do this. They're letting society down if they don't, you know, solve massive problems and solve the problem of inequality or poverty and, you know, and so I think that's, you know, when Justin and I set out to write the book, that's a message that we thought, well, maybe some people need to hear that. But if that's the only message that young people hear, that's bad. Mm. And so the first half of the book is sort of teasing out the implications of when a 19-year-old or a 22-year-old graduates from college and they set out to live by this sort of commencement speech morality, what are the kinds of things that we can expect for them? And and the two main things we discuss in the book are moralizing, which is overstepping your bounds as an enforcer of morality, and meddling, which is overstepping your bounds as a helper. It's possible to try to inappropriately help people. And I think those are two bad things. We don't want mm. a world full of moralizers and meddlers, but that's the kind of behavior that is predictably present when the main message young people hear is you have to get out there and change the world. Yeah. Well, and there's that little bit of, like, bring it back to the religiosity piece. There's that little bit of guilt, right? Like, you know, you sit there and I, you know, I don't know how many graduates actually pay attention to the speeches, but, you know, you are hearing it is the vibe out there of like, you need to do big. Otherwise, you might not feel proud of yourself or you might not feel accomplished if you aren't recognized as having accomplished something, you know, solved a problem of, you know, water in hard to reach places in the desert or, you know, whatever it might be, poverty, pick your problem. If you don't solve one of these problems, then you're a failure. <laughs> and so there's there's that religious guilt, right? That shame, guilt, some of those base instincts that we would like to try to avoid. And so now we revert to earning and earning as in like earning favor, right? Earning grace, if you will, to use that phrase, because I think a lot of people do want to be you know, to bring it back to like Adam Smith, they want to be lovely, right? Like they want to be recognized in some capacity, even if it's not like, hey, I'm the next Bill Gates or the next Mr. Beast or whatever it might be. I often wonder how much of this problem is exacerbated by the quick reach of things like with the internet, with the news, right? Like we're now in a global awareness of what poverty looks like. Whereas a hundred years ago, we might know about it in some way, but like, what is around us more, more within our reach is actually all that we can actually change. Do you discuss that enough to say, hey, this is part of the problem? Well, it's certainly true that young people, I mean, not just young people, but certainly young people have a view of the world that is more expansive in the sense that they learn about things that young people wouldn't have learned about 50 years ago. I mean, just think about like what you would see on TikTok. I mean, I'm actually really worried about like, you know, 
I'm no expert, but it sounds like a lot of young people are basically being indoctrinated and propagandized in this, you know, we're recording this in December of 23. It's like, you know, this debate about Israel and Hamas and who's responsible for what, what's actually happened. And it sounds like there is a large segment of high school and college age students that are getting basically their news from TikTok influencers. And like, if you wanted to create a machine that produced bad results, that would be the machine that you would create. Like, like 20 year olds getting their news about world historic events and geopolitics from an app where it's just other 19 and 20 year olds, like just talking and making things up. Like that would be the machine that you would use to destroy a generation, you know, political sense. So I think this is bad, obviously. If it's not clear from the way I describe it, I think it's bad. And I don't know how to solve that problem. I mean, here's one thing that the second half of this book is trying to do. So the first half of the book is really the dangers of minding other people's business, trying to enforce morality where you really shouldn't and trying to help people when you really have no business doing, inserting yourself in their affairs. The second half of the book is the merits of minding your own. And so we focus on putting down roots and creating a good home and even spending time in solitude. And those messages, I mean, they sound kind of quaint. I mean, like imagine like sitting down a 20 year old being like, okay, here's, here's a way to live, (laughs) get a job, get married, have some kids, coach T-ball, volunteer at the Kiwanis club. Sure. You know, write a check to an effective charity, you know, once a month. That's great. But you know, you only have so much social energy and, if you really want to be good and do good in the world, this is your best bet. It's not creating a TikTok account and trying to get famous. <laughs> but the problem is, you know, it's very hard. Culture just makes it very hard to find status and meaning in small life, in, you know, living, you know, I, I live in kind of rural Ohio. I think you live kind of in a small town. Yeah. And rural it's, Pennsylvania. You know, it's like rural Pennsylvania. It's very hard. You know, like that's not the kind of thing that a lot of young people are interested in, but I think they're yearning for a different kind of message. Whenever I talk about this book with people, I I just mention the words commencement speech morality and everyone knows what I'm talking about. And everyone knows that what is being, you know, look, you're right that no one like hears a commencement speech and it's like, oh, okay, I guess I need to go do that. But this is, you know, those speeches are encapsulating years of messaging from parents and guidance counselors, social media influencers and politicians that what they really need to do is do the big stuff. And I think there is room in culture for a kind of message to young people and older people. I mean, this is not just a a book for young people, but you will probably be happier and do more good in the world if you put down roots, create a good home, spend time in solitude than if you try to do big things and save the world. Yeah. There's a little bit of a double-edged sword though, right? Like there is one sense you have to learn when I say have to, like people are motivated to inspire others to do good things and to do great things. And there are going to be people out there who can do that. And so you can't like filter your message to the people most likely to do it and then just ignore the rest. And so you give these commencement speeches and you, you motivate people in some ways but it does seem as though the it's okay to mind your own business and not in the negative sense, but literally to mind your own business, which is what you talk about in the second half of the book, is actually also of equal value. 
it's not a consolation prize to, well, okay, so you couldn't make it big in the world, make a huge impact, but, you know, it's okay that your kids grew up, you know, balanced. <laughs> like, it does right, seem, in right. my mind, the ethos is that it's somewhat of a consolation prize. But I want to talk about the minding your own business part, but before that, can we talk a little bit about the moralizer and the busybody and, like, how do they sure. differ? I, I know you briefly, you know, defined it or whatever, but I think one of the reasons that really attracted me to this book was the idea of the busybody and there's the, um, I don't even think you use it in the book or not, but the, the C.S. Lewis quote about the busybody. Mm-hmm. And if I, you might even call it a moral busybody. And he says that they're actually worse types of people because they do so at the, like they have no conscience about being a moral busybody. So these are two terms that are like, and that's one of my favorite quotes. And so there's like two terms in your book that you deal with that are like, this. I want to talk about this. So what is the moralizer? What yeah. is the busybody? Talk a little bit about how they differ and why they're a problem. So a moralizer is someone who enforces morality outside of their enforcement authority. So look, morality is important. We all agree it's important to do right, do good things, not to do bad things. And I think most people agree it's good to enforce morality. So we enforce morality by you know, we blame people, we discourage certain kinds of behavior, we intervene and say, hey, don't do that, that's bad. And then we also praise people, we intervene to praise or encourage. And so we're all kind of moral cops in one way or another. I think most people agree that within certain bounds, it's good to enforce morality, teach morality, blame people, sometimes shame people, ostracize. But the point of And what the moralizer teaches us is that there are limits to this authority. We do not have a limited authority to enforce morality on everyone at all times. And it's not just because we have false beliefs about morality. I mean, even if you have all the true beliefs about morality, that doesn't mean you have the authority to go around and enforce it. And I'll just give you an example that we talk about in the book. One reason why you might not have the authority to enforce morality is because sometimes things just aren't that important. So you walk by a colleague at work who you overhear talking to his wife and he's, you know, he lies, he's lying to her about how busy he is. You know, he's stuck at the office, but really, as you know, truthfully, he just wants an hour of quiet time. You don't really know this guy, just your colleague. You know, it would be inappropriate for you to walk up to him and like confront him and give him a little moral lesson about lying and, you know, how important (laughs) it is to be honest with your spouse. And so that's one way that your authority to enforce morality, even when you have all the true beliefs, is limited. So your authority can be limited by importance. Maybe you just don't know enough about the situation. Maybe you just don't have the right social standing. So it's one thing for you, Doug, to sort of maybe for your wife to criticize you for not doing your household chores that you said. It would be another thing for me, even if I knew that was true about you, to get on this podcast and be like, hey, Doug, like you really need to pull your weight at home. That's not my, you know, I don't have the authority to do that. You know, a doctor might pull you, you know, your doctor might pull you aside and say, hey, Brand, you know, Doug, you really need to like start eating better. That might be appropriate. It would be inappropriate for someone in an elevator to give you that same lecture, <laughs> even if he was also a doctor. And so, you know, once you start going through all these cases, it becomes pretty clear that our our authority to enforce morality is limited. And what moralizers yeah. do is they act as the moral cops outside of that authority. So those are, those are the moralizers, the busybodies. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to interrupt you for a second yeah. on the moralizer because sure. I, I want to, 
play devil's advocate just a little bit. Because I am the type of person who will look at a situation and maybe it's a little bit out of laziness and maybe it's a little bit out of, I tend to have a sense of it's not my business. You look at a situation and you are somewhat compelled to maybe say something. So let's say they're, to use a pretty obvious situation we kind of contrive here, is that you're pretty sure someone's being abused, okay? You think they're being abused and you're, they're being abused by maybe your standards, maybe, I don't know, like laws are different depending on like with spanking and that kind of thing. But let's say you know that your neighbor spanks their kid when they're disobedient. But otherwise, maybe not not abusive in the sense of like you can see bruises on the kid. But like they spank their kids and you think that that's wrong. Would it be okay for me to do that? And some people will say, oh, well, I shouldn't mind my own business. Or if I mind my own business, I could be enabling something that's immoral that has pretty significant consequences. And I think a lot of people have like a little bit of fear of missing out on the prevent bad things from happening. Mm -hmm. You know, like if someone is yelling at their child in the supermarket, you could confront that person. It would be a little awkward in the supermarket, but you know, you could confront that person thinking that like maybe, <laughs> maybe you could bring that person around. I think you might even use that in the book. Somebody scolding your child in, a, in an ineffective way. But like there is a little bit of how do I make sure that I'm not ignoring a true legitimate problem that I could confront? And, and it might even be one of those like call the cops kind of things, depending on the situation. But it seems to me like a moralizer is stepping over bounds. But at the same time, people fear letting an injustice take place that they could have stopped. Yeah, so good. So one question you might ask of us, of Justin and I in this book, is are we saying you should never blame or intervene when people do bad or what you think is bad? And the Question, the, the answer is obviously not. We do often have legitimate authority to intervene and blame. Morality licenses us to enforce morality itself. The question is, when does that authority peter out? And I don't think the answer is just whenever I can do some good. Because then, you know, life would really just be annoying. Like it would be really hard to walk <laughs> around and have just, you know, you'd be constantly, you'd be constantly hectored. We have an extremely moralized society where everyone is in their own mind trying to promote the good by enforcing morality. What's weird about morality is, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like owning a cactus. I've killed a lot of cacti in my life because I'm, I care too much, Doug. I just, you know, I look at this thing and I, this thing needs more water. I haven't watered this thing in a week. Surely it needs more water. And you know, I don't know if I've ever not killed a cactus from watering it too much. And I think morality or enforcing morality is a lot like that. We don't automatically get better outcomes by being more aggressive in our enforcement of morality. So you're absolutely right that there are situations in, you know, Often these, you know, the situations that people give us are like, oh, there's some abuse happening that you could like intervene in, or you know someone's doing this bad thing and you could step in and help. And and there are cases like that. But what people have to you know keep in mind is that enforcing morality itself is costly. So because you know, because enforcing morality often is good and useful, doesn't mean it's free. Blaming, shaming, intervening, this, this does not occur on a frictionless plane. These things are socially costly. You know, just simply coercing people and trying to get them to live in a certain way, taking the time to intervene and talk, and often this causes moral conflict. These are all things that can happen because of our moral intervention. 
And part of what we're doing in this chapter is trying to get people to take seriously, there is always a cost to enforcing morality. It's often worth worth it, but just because it's worth it doesn't mean there's no cost. Mm, yeah. Okay, so then the busybody. So the busybody is someone, so the moralizer is someone who inappropriately enforces morality. A busybody is someone who inappropriately tries to help others. And I think a lot of people have immediate sort of puzzling, like how could it be wrong to help? Or how could it be wrong to try to help? And this is something we date back. I mean, this is an ancient, you know, as you you mentioned C.S. Lewis, but, you know, we can go back to Plutarch and Plato thinks you should just sort of like do your job and not worry about other people's business. So how could it be wrong to inappropriate or how could it be wrong to help other people? Well, imagine, you know, going around the world trying to solve other people's problems for them. You overhear a couple at the park who's retired trying to plan their investment strategy and you stop by and you say, oh, by the way, here's what you should do. You overhear, you know, some friends talking at the coffee shop about minimum wage law and you interject and say, oh, actually, here's what economists say. You know, you're trying to help them by giving them true beliefs. You know, you walk around the gym trying to correct people's weightlifting form. You walk up to some guy at the bus stop and you say, actually, you're, you know, you're using the wrong type of shampoo for your hair type. No, you could, (laughs) you could go through life constantly trying to help people. But for many reasons, it can be inappropriate to do so. I mean, the obvious ones are you just don't know enough about what's going on. And so you're actually going to give bad advice. Another problem is that there's something wrong or weird, something that needs explanation about why you would go around helping, trying to help other people when you have your own problems to deal with. And this is something the ancients really we're concerned about. It's like, hey, if you want to go solve problems, go solve your own. And it's not that there aren't problems out there in the world that you could solve. It's that the problems that you are most responsible for solving are your own. And that doesn't mean you need to have a perfect life before you start helping others. But it does mean, you know, at a certain point, you got to kind of have your own house in order before you start rearranging the furniture of other people's houses. And so the meddler, you know, the, you know, the person who's a busybody, they're out there trying to solve other people's problems. And this is bad. I mean, it's bad. You know, you could give all kinds of examples of government programs, wars that are started, where the main idea is to solve someone else's problem. And of course, it could be good to help people solve their problems. The problem is when trying to solve other people's problems becomes a replacement for solving our own, or it becomes sort of a psychological need. You know, there's psychologists talk about pathological altruism, which is just a unhealthy fixation on helping people. And I think we probably, you know, you and I probably both know people who think of themselves as like, you know, they kind of have a messiah complex. They really think of themselves mm-hmm. as helping the world. And I'm sure they probably do, but boy, is it annoying. And yeah, Elizabeth Warren comes to mind first, to be honest. Yeah. So what, tell me about, what are some things about her sort of political impulses that you find to be meddling? Yeah. Well, it seems like she constantly wants to assert herself as a defender of like the weak and helpless consumers of big tech, right? Like more recently, she actually very recently this weekend, Apple apparently made a decision to shut down something for 
that would connect like Android devices to iMessage or something like that. And it had to do with the technical security leak or security flaw or something like that, that Apple had every right to sort of like nix, right? And Elizabeth Warren, you know, sees this as a a reason for antitrust and a reason to, you know, fight against big tech. And so she's just kind of like, I'm going to be out there protecting somebody of her age saying, I'm going to be out there protecting the, the youths from big tech. Right. <laughs> it's just like right. from, from the big tech company. It's just like, really, lady, come on, go home, <laughs> go back to your teepee. So, yeah. you know, there's a little bit of mind your own business for her. She's very much of a meddler. Bernie Sanders, obviously they're kind of the same camp. Bernie Sanders seems to be a little bit more judicious about things and like fight things on the one hand. He doesn't have this like personality complex of I need to show up as a defender of these weird, tiny inconveniences a lot of people might have, like having six different types of charging cables in my dress drawer or something. You know, we need to have just one. Mm -hmm. You know, he he doesn't Mm -hmm. have that same messiah complex that I think Elizabeth Warren seems to have. Yeah, that's interesting. There is for many people and this and there's a psych literature on this there's a pathological need to be seen as a helper. Mm. Because, you know, what, what a lot of these people do, it's one thing to sort of like quietly help a lot of people. It's another thing to make a big show out of it. And, you know, there's, look, there's an argument for that. Like, you know, if you do good, and you're real public about it, you can set a good example. And we talk about some of these criticisms in the book. But my sense is that what's driving a lot of sort of busybodies and people who have a messiah complex is an outsized view of themselves in the world that they mm-hmm. and they need to have that view affirmed so psychologist anna freud sort of had this view of, of altruists in general is like look you can't solve your own problems and so in order to sort of feel good about yourself as a person you have to solve other people's problems and i don't think that explains you know all of meddlers but i confess in writing this writing this chapter with Justin, I was thinking of a particular philosopher who I just think, man, and I see his stuff on Facebook. I think he might have blocked me by this point, but or unfriended me. But you know, I, I just used to it's like this guy really needs others to think that he is saving the world. And I think, how is it possible that he has solved his problems first and before he, you know, he's going around trying to solve other people's uh-huh. problems. I mean, you know, it's like Oh, you know, I saw this philosopher speaker list at a conference and it's not diverse enough. I've taken upon myself to write up a list. Here are some people that you should invite instead. It's like, dude, do you not have problems of your own? Like, that are so much more (laughs) pressing than this. Well, Uh, maybe not, but my cynical response to you, I only say this tongue in cheek, is that, well, hey, maybe that's just not his specialization. (laughs) Like, he has the inability to do so. And we can pick any particular person. It's like, well, they're more big-minded than local-minded or minded within their own grasp. It's like, you know, the people who, you know, the stereotypical person who can do a lot of good for other people, but their, like, house is a mess or their desk and their, you know, their personal lives are a mess. And somehow it is just what they're better at at helping other people as opposed to, you know, introspection and self-reflection on what is going to be their, what what you call their own business. So that would be my cynical defense of that person. It's like, well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to manage my kids. That's just not my skills and expertise. And so, you know, it is what it is. But I do know what diversity at philosophy conferences looks like. Right. I mean, this is an interesting and difficult philosophical question. Why do we 
where many of us think that there's something amiss if you know you you see someone out there trying to solve other people's problems, inv- and you know involving themselves in all these dramas and other people's affairs, and then you yeah you go to their house and their house is a mess, their kids are assholes, and you know they have a horrible marriage and they they can't manage their money. So here's a philosophical question: Why think that their first obligation are these things at home? <laughs> why think that? And I, it's not actually obvious to me why that is. I think that requires a sort of a philosophical sort of, you know, it, if you if, if you go in for philosophy, do you think that requires some sort of deep explanation? I think it's hard to give. But there is this sort of like common sense response. It's like, dude, if you can't take care of yourself, mm-hmm. why should we give you the benefit of the doubt that you are able to manage others' affairs? Yeah, you've yeah. shown, you know. Your, you know, your evidence base of the things that you absolutely care most about is not good. So why should we trust you with these other people's lives? Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Crisis King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly eBooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. Let's shift a little bit to the how do we mind our own business. You mentioned it earlier, rootedness, home and hospitality, and then solitude, which those three things do, I mean, those are quaint ideas, right? And I don't say that in a pejorative way, but a lot of people might. Mm -hmm. But even in the rootedness, you give a defense of institutions, why it's not easy to preserve institutions. What do you have in mind when it comes to rootedness? Because it could be, you know, if you just kind of cursory glance at the contents of your book, People might think that you're just wanting more women to be homemakers and more men to just go to work and come home and be dads and, you know, play on the carpet with their kids. And then you just put them to bed and and say a good night story and a prayer and rinse and repeat. Like that's just the life right. that you think is what people ought to do. That could be the impression. But what do you yeah. have in mind there, more, more or less? I will say I'm perfectly happy with more people doing that. Sure. Yeah, no, me too. You know, if they want, I mean... One problem is that a lot of people think that's wrong, that they're not supposed to do that, that they need to. That it's not enough. They need that it's not enough or that you're somehow betraying moral progress by doing this. So the idea of the rudeness chapter really came from reading this weird book by this French philosopher in the early 20th century, Simone Weil, who was extremely odd and at turns odd and insightful philosopher. And she, she ended up starving herself. She died at like 34 in a, you know, in, a, in, a, in an asylum because she went crazy. But she wrote this book, Charles de Gaulle and some of the French resistance asked her to write a book sort of charting a course for how France 
you know, assuming they were able to defeat the Nazis, how could they create a French society that was resistant to this sort of invasion in the future? And she wrote this book called The Need for Roots. And the book is very strange. Uh, it, but what we took from the book is that she defends rootedness. And so what we do in this chapter is try to use her as a jumping off point to, you know, to talk about, well, what does it mean to be rooted? You know, I often hear people say, I don't feel rooted or I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting a job and finally settling down and putting down roots. What does that mean? And we really took the metaphor of, a, of having roots, having, you know, a plant having roots seriously. So rootedness has three aspects, yeah. being attached to a place. And there's all literature and psychology on place attachment and, it's where you feel at home in the world. It's where you have a loyalty and affection. So being attached to a place and receiving the benefits of that place. So just like roots receive nutrients and uh, water from the soil, there are benefits of being rooted. We discuss those in the chapter. And then there's also a responsibility to sort of preserve the good things around you. So if you read this literature, I don't know, I... I read these weird literatures for these books. I, all of a sudden I was reading papers on like soil erosion and like <laughs> runoff in, you know, various parts of the world. <laughs> soil erosion is a, is a massive problem. And one way to prevent soil erosion is to like, you know, if you have like a field or whatever that's, you know, it's fallow for a while, you plant a covering crop like clover, even not because you're going to harvest it, but because it secures this, yeah. the soil yeah. in its place. It preserves it. And so I was like, well, that's kind of that's kind of what rooted people do is they invest in their local communities and they preserve the good things around them. So instead of trying to start things or do big things, they simply try to maintain the good things around them. And I, I think that maintainer, we call it maintainer derogation in another paper, but it's basically this idea that like you don't get praise, you don't get accolades for just maintaining and preserving the institutions and habitats that are around you. And I mean that like in a very pedestrian way, like keeping your street clean, mowing your yard, making sure the public library is clean and has books. And like if everyone was the CEO of a startup or like it was head of an NGO, like these, all of these things would fall into disrepair and that's bad. These are all extremely important institutions to our lives that make life sort of just tolerable. And when we derogate people who commit their lives to doing this sort of ground level maintenance and preservation of society, that's bad because it does, you know, disincentivize people from thinking mm -hmm. that what they're doing is important. Because look, if people don't keep your local library clean or keep your street clean and keep your house painted, no one's going to do it for you. And so the idea of that chapter is that- What about the busybody who thinks that your house doesn't look attractive and wants to paint it? <laughs> Yeah. If we all just, if we all are just busy bodies in the right way, everything will get done. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Busy body in the right way. I guess, it, you know, it's like we define busy body as like in, inappropriate helping. So I don't know if you could do it the right way, but if, yeah, if you can be appropriately helping, <laughs> then that would be good. I mean, but here's the benefit of quote unquote, being a busy body in your local neighborhood. It's like, you have to interact with these people over and over again. You can't be a jerk, you know, like, you can go experiment with the lives of people in far-flung places of the world and really mess up their lives because you impose some risky social experiment scheme on them. You don't, you don't have to deal with the externalities. 
And if you do that in your neighborhood, like you have to pay the cost. Like if you go around imposing on people your wild-eyed schemes of social mm, experimentation, yeah. political upheaval, like you have to pay the cost. And so one of the benefits of up, you know, applying your good intentions, but doing it on the local level is that it makes people more cognizant of the fact that things could get worse, these things could fail. And in those cases, you have to internalize the externalities, like you have to pay the cost. So there's a kind of like, it focuses, I feel like putting down roots and doing good things there focuses the mind, it clears the mind in a way because you have to live with consequences of your behavior. Yeah. So as we wrap up a little bit here, how do you think this applies to Christians? I mean, there's a bit of like, we do need to assert ourselves or insert ourselves into the world in a strategic way in that we need to share the gospel. We need to share our witness and what does true living look like. And sometimes it does mean stopping injustice. How do you think that factors into the message that you have here? Yeah. So Paul writes in First Thessalonians, he says something like, Live a quiet life. So this is chapter four. Live a quiet life, mind your own business, do your job. And one way to think about this book is as, a tr- as, as an attempt to figure out what Paul might have meant when he's telling the Thessalonians, live a calm, peaceful life and mind your own business. I don't think if you take that serious, if you take that exhortation from Paul seriously, it's hard to really justify the following view, which is like a Christian should be out there trying to change the world and starting revolution. Now, this might be in tension with the view that like what Christians should be doing is like preaching and proselytizing. And I think there's actually some very difficult questions about like, is is an 18th century missionary to, to China, a Christian missionary, are they minding their own business? I mean, that's actually a very difficult question. But setting those sort of complications aside, you know, you'd imagine Paul writing a letter to just some ordinary person in Thessalonica, like he said, like, hey, just be chill, focus on your own problems, mind your own business, and do your job. Um, so my own bias is that I think Christians should probably set an example in this, in that Christians should be anxious to prioritize minding their own business. And if there are people who are out being movers and shakers, trying to change the world, try to impose their views of morality on others. Those people should probably, if they are Christians, they, sh- they should have thought very carefully about that kind of life. Mm. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but I think a, you know, a Christian who wants to get out there and upset the status quo should have thought very carefully about whether that's what they should be doing. Mm. And so I, I think of it as just a, it's like a presumption, like, Christians should have a presumption in favor of minding their own business. Now, maybe a Christian just disagrees. You know, you can imagine someone just disagrees with how we think about that in the book, which is perfectly fine. But, you know, I think Christians should have some sense of what it means for them to mind their own business. And that shouldn't be the life that you have to defend. That should be the default that you start from. Well, Brandon, I do appreciate your book a lot and I encourage our listeners to go out and purchase it. It is a pretty short book. It's like 140 pages. I read it in a little bit more than a weekend, partly in prep for this interview and there was a deadline for me to read it, but it's very enjoyable. It's also not a, I I wouldn't say it's a deep, it's not like a hard philosophy book, right? I mean, this is more pop level, right? 
Yeah, it's meant for it's meant for smart people who've never taken a philosophy class before. But which is all of my listeners, <laughs> which which is good. But it's also got stuff in there that we hope is new for even philosophers. So yeah, even you know yeah. our accounts of moralizing and busybodies, those are new. And you know philosophers don't talk about hospitality or roots or home. These these are not big topics. And so yeah, right. We're trying to buck the trend. And yeah, thanks for reading, Doug. It's been great to talk to you again, and really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So the book is Why It's Okay to Mind Your Own Business by Justin Tosi and Brandon Warpke. Brandon is here with me talking about the book. Brandon, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com. You click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished.